Amen. Good morning again, everybody. You have your Bible with you this morning? Good. You need to turn to Philemon. The book of Philemon, it's only one chapter. It's right before Hebrews. If you don't have a Bible with you, please grab one from the pew rack right in front of you so that you can follow along as we study God's Word together. In fact, if you don't have a Bible at all, like if you don't own a Bible, please please take that one in the pew rack in front of you as our gift to you so you can study God's Word on your own and meet with Him in His Word. He speaks with power and authority through His Word. Well, last week we finished up the introduction of the letter from Paul to Philemon. I hope that I convinced you that even though the introductory sections of biblical letters follow a standard form, they are not mere formality. There is much for us to see there. We must not skip over those sections. Rather, we must dig in, see what God has to say to us. Last week, particularly, we saw a section that was about prayer. And I told you that we, as God's people, should be praying for each other. And that we should not just pray for each other within this local body, but we should be praying for brothers and sisters who are far from us, who are part of other local bodies, who are outside of this fellowship, but inside our circle of influence. Let's be people who pray. We talked also about how faith in Jesus and love for the saints must go hand in hand. It is faith that is the engine that powers love, and love is the evidence of faith. I told you over and over last week that you cannot have one without the other. And you do not have one without the other. Faith and love always travel together. I told you that we must pursue faith and love and flee the things that are obstacles to both of those. Things like gossip and pride and selfishness. I told you also last week that visible manifestations of faith in the life of converts or disciples is the greatest encouragement to preachers. And I want you to remember that because it's going to come up again in the text today. That when you do... What you should do, that's an encouragement to us. When you grab hold of the truths of the gospel, when you grab hold of the obedience of faith, that's a huge encouragement to people like me who teach and preach to you. I told you also last week that attaboys, encouraging words, pats on the back, go a long way in the body of Christ. And you saw that a little bit in Sunday school this morning as well. Well, this week we're going to dive into the body of the letter. It will take us a while to work through it because we're going to work slowly But as we read today the whole letter, you'll see that the letter is pretty short, but it is quite to the point. Particularly today, we're going to learn a great deal about how we are to engage with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. What does it look like to be engaged with each other in Christ? So let's read together. We're going to read all of Philemon like we have the last few weeks, but we will focus our attention on verses 8 and 9 today. This is what God's word says. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Apphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul the aged, 
and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything, so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. For for perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever. No longer a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it, not to mention that you owe to me even your own self as well. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, since I know that you will do even more than what I say. At the same time, also prepare me a lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful to be gathered together in this place today, thankful for the the picture of new life that we have seen in baptism, for the opportunity to unite our voices in singing praises to you for your goodness and grace to us in Christ. Thankful for an opportunity to submit ourselves to your word as we study it, to put ourselves under your authority as revealed in your word. We pray that you will give us ears that can hear, eyes that can see, hearts that gladly accept your truth and gladly submit to it and gladly obey it. We don't want to be mere students today. We want to be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, doers of the word. But on our own, in our own strength, and our own energy, that is impossible. So we ask for your strength, your energy to work in us by the Spirit for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So if, if you haven't been with us uh, over the last few weeks in our study of Philemon, I feel like I need to give you a little bit of background about what's going on behind the scenes here. Philemon is a Christian who hosts a church in his home in the city called Colossae, um, a core member of the body of Christ in that city. And he had a slave whose name was Onesimus. Now, Onesimus probably stole something from Philemon and definitely ran away and is in big trouble as a result of that. Well, he ran so far that he got to Rome, 1,300 miles away, and while he was in Rome, God providentially brought the wicked slave Onesimus into the presence of the Apostle Paul, and the Apostle Paul preached the gospel of Jesus Christ to the slave Onesimus, and he came to faith. He was reborn. He was given new life, a new heart, a new start, right? And at some point, Paul said to Philemon, I mean to Onesimus, you got to go back home and make this right with your master. He's your brother now, and you've wronged him. And so Onesimus travels back to Philemon carrying this letter from the Apostle Paul where Paul is going to encourage Philemon to forgive Onesimus and be reconciled as brothers. So that's the story that's going on here and you need to understand that as we walk through the text today. Look at the first word in verse 8. It says, therefore. 
And my pastor, when I was growing up, used to say, when you see the word therefore, you must always ask, what is it therefore? That's a helpful little tool to remind you that that word teaches us that what is about to be said is linked closely to what just has been said, even based on what has just been said. And what has just been said in the last few verses is a sketch of Philemon's character, a character that loves Jesus, that loves the saints, that believes in Jesus, and is actively working in the kingdom of God. Therefore, this request that Paul is going to make of Philemon to forgive and be reconciled to the wicked slave Onesimus is based on Philemon's character. Paul has heard of his faith in Christ. Paul has heard of his love for the saints. He's been comforted and brought to joy because of Philemon's evidence of faith in his care for the brothers and sisters. And that's why he approaches Philemon with the tone he does. Because he knows who he's talking to. Paul expressed throughout his writings deep confidence in the power of the word of God as he engages lost people. When Paul goes to a new city, he sets up shop usually in the synagogue and preaches the word of God about how Jesus is the Christ and urges men and women and boys and girls to repent of their sins and trust in Jesus Christ. He puts great confidence when he's dealing with lost people in the word of God, in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that it is the power unto salvation. But Paul also expresses a great deal of confidence in the work of God in the life of those who have already been converted. When he engages believers in his letters, he is assuming that the Spirit of God is in them, and therefore they have a new heart, they have a new mind, they have the mind of Christ, they have a regenerate heart who can and will and wants to do the right thing. And so Paul is writing to Philemon as a proven, tested brother, and therefore he speaks with this kind of tone, rather than, rather than doubtful, Rather than, oh, I don't really think Philemon will do the right thing. No, Paul is confident because he knows that God has already done a great work in his heart. And he's going to see that work through to completion. And it will have evidence in Philemon's life. Maybe the application of that idea, that Paul looks at Philemon as a brother and expects him to do what is right, is good for us. Because we should do that with each other. When we look at each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, we should recognize that God has already worked in, in our hearts, and therefore we can expect Christ-likeness to come out of us. If Christ has changed our hearts, then Christ-likeness will come out of us. Maybe the best way to understand what I'm getting at is that when we look at lost people and they act like lost people, we should not be surprised at that, right? When people who don't know Jesus, who live for the world, act worldly, it should not surprise us. It's what's expected, right? But when we look at brothers and sisters, those who have been changed by God's grace, and they act like the world, we should be absolutely surprised because we expect them to look like Jesus. And Paul expects Philemon to look like Jesus in his dealing with Onesimus. So therefore, he says... Though I have confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper. Now in that phrase, there are two very interesting words that I want to draw your attention to that will help us work through this part. Proper and order. Proper and order, I think, are key words in this part of the verse. When I sat down on Monday to study, proper was the very first word I wanted to look into. I have a book in my office. Uh, every preacher has this book in their office. It's an exhaustive concordance of the Bible. It has over 1,500 pages, and, on, and it basically it has every use of every word in the entire Bible. So you can figure out where this word is used, and what's the root of it, and where it came from. 
And it's hard sometimes to find the word you're looking for. Well, Monday morning when I sat down to study, I flipped open. Looking for proper, I flipped open this 1,500-page volume that weighs about 14 pounds to the exact right page. (laughs) I do this like multiple times in a week, and that's never happened before in my life. And I don't know what it means. It probably means nothing, but it's noteworthy at least. That word proper means to be fit. It means to come up to a particular standard. It means to do what is appropriately acceptable. Ephesians chapter 5, Paul uses the same word in Ephesians chapter 5. Read it with me on the screen. He says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But, listen to this, immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Right? They shouldn't even be named among you because that's what's proper among the saints. Read on. He says, and there must be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting. Same word, coarse jesting doesn't fit. It's not proper, but rather the giving of thanks. That seems proper. For this you know with certainty. That no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. First thing I want you to learn today is that in Christ there is a way of living that is proper. And in Christ there is a way of living that is not proper. In Christ there is a way to live that is proper, fitting, acceptable, suitable. And in Christ there is a way to live that is not proper. Paul here is talking about what is proper in in Philemon. In Ephesians he's talking about that which is not proper for a Christian. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 he says similar things. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean the immoral people of this world or with the covetous or swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reveler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do not judge those who are, do you not judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. In other words, he says, we have an obligation to one another to help each other learn what is proper for those who are in Christ and what is not proper. In fact, that's that's maybe the nuts and bolts application of all this. It is our job as brothers and sisters, especially as members of this local church, to help each other know and do what is proper. So when we're, if there's a way to live that's proper and a way to live that's not, and it's our job to help each other know and do what is proper, when I see you as my brother doing what is proper, what should I do? I should say, had a boy, had a boy. That's the right thing. That's good. That's what it looks like to follow after Jesus. I see Jesus in you. And when I see you doing something that is not proper, what should I do? Stop it! Right? I should at least let you know that 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 doesn't fit. This over here fits with with someone who claims to know Jesus. That doesn't fit. It's not proper. We need to recognize that there is, in Christ, a way to live that fits and a way to live that doesn't. And we, as brothers and sisters, have an obligation to help each other know and do what is proper. And to do that, we're going to have to be submitted to each other. 
We're going to have to be vulnerable with each other. We're going to have to respect each other. We're going to have to be willing to say and receive at a boy. And we're going to have to be willing to say and receive. Oh, no, that doesn't work. That takes real fellowship. It takes real love. And that's what Paul is assuming between himself and Philemon and Philemon and Onesimus. So first application, in Christ there is a way of living that is proper and a way of living that is not. And it is our job as brothers and sisters, especially members of the local church, to help each other know and do what is proper. Second word I think is significant here is Paul's use of the word order. It means to command. And it's used only ten times in the New Testament. Most of them are in the Gospels. And most of the time it's a reference to Jesus commanding something. Jesus commanding people to do this or do that. In fact, it appears a bunch of times in Luke chapter 8. In Luke chapter 8, Jesus commands with authority nature. There's a story about Jesus saying, hey, let's get in the boat and let's go to the other side of the lake. And they get in the middle of the lake in the middle of the night and there's a huge storm, right? Jesus is in the boat asleep. Master, don't you even care that we're perishing? And Jesus wakes up and he commands the wind and the seas to stop. And what do they do? They stop and the disciples say, what kind of guy is this? What kind of man is this that he commands the wind? He commands the waves and they obey? Right after they get to the other side of the lake, they encounter a crazy naked man. Remember this? Demon-possessed crazy naked man. This is the whole story about the, the pigs being cast out. The demons say, Jesus, command that we would not be cast out into the abyss. They beg Jesus to make a command to them because they know he's in charge. So notice here, that word is authoritative. It is powerful. And Paul says he has confidence in Christ to command Philemon to do the right thing. As an apostle, as an authoritative representative of Jesus Christ, Paul could order Philemon to do what is proper. He could tell him, you must embrace Onesimus. You must be reconciled to him. He could order him to do what is proper. But he doesn't really, he doesn't really hang this authority on his apostleship here. He says, I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper. And what I want you to see is that that authority isn't because he's an apostle, but because he's his brother. It's not just Paul in authority over Philemon as an apostle. It's Paul engaging Philemon as a brother. And we have authority in each other's life to order each other to do what is proper. And we're going to talk about this more in just a minute. But at this point, remember that Paul says he could order Philemon to do what is right. In other words, to live as a Christian. He could approach Philemon with that tone, but he doesn't. Read on. He says, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you. Now that word appeal is really interesting. It's from two Greek words. One that means to travel close beside, like to walk really close, and the other is to call out. It's this picture of not standing up in the ivory tower, directing and commanding, but rather walking alongside someone, encouraging them. In fact, it's, it's the word that's used to describe what the Spirit does when He encourages us. When the Holy Spirit encourages us, same, same kind of word going on here, that He is an encourager. And so Paul is saying, I could command you, but for love's sake, rather, I appeal to you. As a, as a brother, I appeal to you. In other words, He's going to call to 
He's going to exhort. He's going to encourage. So rather than order, though he could do that, Paul is going to appeal, to encourage, to ask Philemon to do the right thing with Onesimus. And he says that he's ultimately motivated by love. Motivated by love. So there are two lessons, I think, for us in this part of the text. First is this. There is a time for ordering and a time for appealing. As we engage one another, there is a time for ordering and there is a time for appealing. And I believe this is an important lesson for all of us in this room today. For modern evangelicalism, especially in America, but specifically for us here at First Baptist Church. There is a time for ordering and there is a time for appealing. A time for both of those approaches. Does this happen today? Can a pastor order his people to do something? Can a brother order another brother to do what is proper? Or must we always only be appealing to one another? Well, practically speaking, that's all we ever do. That's all we ever do with each other is appeal. We beg, we plead. We have no box for an authoritative leader, an authoritative brother to tell us what to do. In fact, every time, nearly every time this happens in the church, you observe something going on in your brother's life and you say, you cannot do that. That is not becoming of a Christian. That does not fit with what it looks like to be a Christian. You cannot do that. That friend will say, who are you? Who are you to tell me what to do? This text answers that. I'm your brother. I'm your brother who wants you to live like Jesus. And you're not. And I love you. And so I'm going to order you not to do that. I think that we need to recognize that there is a time for ordering and a time for appealing. And we live in a world that only appeals. And we need a new box. We need a new box within the local church for ordering. For ordering and being ordered. So some of you, some of you are like, yeah, I'm going to get some orders this week. I'm going to tell so-and-so what they got to do. And you're all, amen, that's right. Pre- preach it, brother. Well, if we're going to have that kind of relationship with each other, that flows both ways, right? If we're going to live in that kind of fellowship where, where I have authority to order you, guess what? You have authority to order me to do what is proper in the Lord. You don't get to order me what to wear. You don't get to order me what to eat or drink. You don't get to order me what kind of music to listen to, but you get to order me to do what is proper in the Lord. And it's got to flow both ways. And we're missing it. We're so soft. We're so soft with each other and people are walking to hell. And we're like asking, asking them to turn around. Rather than warn them, command them to turn around. We need a box for this kind of authoritative speech with brothers and sisters. I had lunch with a pastor that I respect and love who has served for a long time in a lot of different contexts. And we were talking about this kind of thing in a totally unrelated conversation. But I've got all this spinning around in my head. And he said, you know what the church needs? The church needs Ezra's and Nehemiah's. And I just kind of looked at him like, well, okay. He said, you remember what Ezra did when he saw the people sin? And Ezra is an Old Testament character. When he saw the people sin, he tore his clothes. He pulled his hair and he beat his breast. When he saw the people sin, that's how he responded. 
Nehemiah, who was working with the same people at basically the same time, when he saw the people sin, you remember what he did? He tore their clothes. He pulled out their hair. And he beat them up. Like literally beat them up. Now, I am not advocating physical violence amongst the body. It's not what I'm getting at. But we are a quantum leap from that at this point. Like that's, that's not even dangerous for us right now. What I'm saying is have a hard conversation. And tell a brother, that is not what it looks like to follow Jesus. You cannot leave your wife. You cannot look at that. You cannot cheat that way. You cannot talk like that. We have to be able to speak to each other that way and be spoken to that way. Paul here is choosing to appeal. But in his choosing to appeal, do you notice that he reminds him, I, I don't have to do it this way. Like, I have confidence in Christ to order you to do what is right, but I'm going to appeal to you, right? Like, Asher, I could order you to clean your room, but I'm going to ask you to do it, right? There's a little bit of both of these things going on in this text. The application there is there is a time for ordering and a time for appealing. Second application of this little section when he says, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you, has to do with something we talked about last week. A pastor's greatest joy is not just when people do the right thing, but when they want to do the right thing. When they do the right thing simply because they want to. Paul's pastoral heart would be most blessed if Philemon wanted to do the right thing with Onesimus. Right? Last week we talked about this, and I used this picture of how great a joy it is when you've been trying to teach a kid to catch a ball, and he finally catches the ball. And you're like, yes! Mission accomplished. The kid catches the ball. But for a while, you still got to stand over that kid and kind of help him catch the ball, right? Well, how much greater joy is there 12, 15 years down the road when that same kid that you taught how to catch the ball throws a no-hitter in a college baseball game? He doesn't need your help anymore. But you had a hand in it way back then, and now he's just doing it. He's just going for it. And you sit back and say, yes, there is great delight in that, right? And that's what Paul is getting at. There's like mega time joy when believers do what is right without being told to do what is right and simply because they want to. In fact, imagine this best case scenario. Paul writes a letter to Philemon, hands it off to Onesimus. Onesimus nervously travels back to Paul. He delivers this letter. But before Philemon ever reads the letter, he sees Onesimus coming like the prodigal son's father. He sees Onesimus coming, and he runs out to him, just like the father in that story. And he embraces him, and he kisses him. He says, oh, I've been so worried about you. Where did you go? And Onesimus is just amazed at this, right? And then, and then Philemon opens up the letter, and, and Paul is talking about, oh, I could command you, but I'm going to encourage you. And it's already done. It's already done because of Christ who lives in him. Christ has so transformed his character that he's already doing what is right. Maybe that's the way it went. And maybe then Onesimus went home, and he wrote back to Paul, Paul, you're not going to believe this. I didn't even get to town. And he came running out and received me back. He didn't ever have to read your letter. Because of the power of God that was at work in him, the new character God had given to him. That's a great joy for pastors. That's a great joy for us who lead you. When we just watch you do because you want to, not because we're watching over you, not because we're instructing every little step, but because Christ has so captivated your heart that you're going to serve him no matter what. That's the win, right? And I see that. I see that around here with people involved in new ministry and involved in reconciliation, involved in all kinds of good stuff. 
So if you want to bless your pastor's hearts, do what is proper without having to be told what it is or that you should do it and do it with a smile. Paul goes on and he says, I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul the aged and now a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Paul the aged. He calls himself an old man here. And he probably was. And he probably hadn't aged well. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul gives this laundry list of his sufferings. Beatings, imprisonments, dangers here, dangers there, dangers from these people, dangers all the time. And then he says, not to mention the daily pressure of the church, right? My guess is Paul had not aged well. Have you ever seen pictures of presidents on their first day in office compared to their last day in office? Like four years of that kind of stress can age a dude, right? Now, I think the most, the most pronounced one is Barack Obama. Man, he is wrinkly and gray by the time he left the, the White House. It'll do it to you, right? And Paul's life was hard like that. Have you ever gone to buy uh, a used car? And they're like, oh, it's got 160,000 miles. But they're all highway miles. They're all easy miles, right? Paul didn't have any easy miles. His walk with Jesus was hard. He was probably crippled. He was sick. He had been beaten. That, when he talks about taking the scourging, the cat of nine tails, 39 lashes over and over and over again, that would have left his back just one giant scar. He wouldn't have been able to stand up straight. He was a mess because he followed Jesus. And not only is he an old man at this point, he's in jail for following Jesus. He's not in jail because he murdered somebody. He's not in jail because he stole something. He's in jail because he stood up and preached the gospel. And they locked him up because of it. He says it over and over again in this short letter about his imprisonment. So the question is, what's he trying to accomplish here by referring to his age and his imprisonment? I think primarily what he's trying to do here is identify with the slave Onesimus. He's trying to line himself up more with Onesimus than he does with Philemon. Because what he's got going on is Philemon already loves him. Even though he's old, even though he's crippled, even though he's had this hard life, Philemon loves him. And even though he's in jail, Philemon accepts him. And if Philemon had one chance to get Paul out of jail, he'd take it in a heartbeat. And so Paul is trying to line himself up with Onesimus so that Philemon will come to see Onesimus in a similar way that he sees him. Does that make sense? So that he will have the same kind of love and mercy and compassion on Onesimus as he does on Paul. And I think the other reason he says it like that is just to get some sympathy. He's asking Philemon to do a hard thing, a countercultural thing. And if that comes from an old man who's in jail, <laughs> if I get a letter from an old man in jail for following Jesus, if I get a letter from a persecuted brother asking me to stand on my head for four days, I'm doing it. If I get a letter from one of you guys, maybe not. So there's a little bit of sympathy to get Philemon to do what is proper in the Lord. So two applications here from this part of the text. First, following Jesus isn't going to be easy. Following Jesus is not going to be easy. You might get old beyond your years. You might land in jail. You might lose face with your neighbors like Philemon is likely to do if he accepts Onesimus. You might lose your life as you follow Jesus. Following Jesus won't be easy, but it'll be worth it. Let me, let me put it to you this way. Would you rather have an easy life and go to hell? 
I mean, is that, is that what we're looking for, an easy life that ends in destruction? Or do we want to follow Jesus wherever that road may lead, that narrow road that is probably difficult to walk, that serves him, serves his kingdom, glorifies him, and leads to eternal life? Let's walk that road and be ready for the trouble that comes. The last application I think is significant because there are some scholars who want to see this letter as a single-pronged approach, that Paul is only using appeal here. He's only using a soft hand in this letter. I don't think that's the case. I think what's going on here is that Paul is willing to use every possible motivation to get Philemon to do what is right in the Lord. He is primarily appealing. He is overtly appealing But under the surface, there's a lot of other things going on here. He's pressing a lot of buttons to get Philemon to do what is proper in the Lord. John Phillips said this. He said, but to stand upon one's right and take advantage of one's position to enforce a line of behavior from another person is never very satisfactory. A person can be made to follow a given line of behavior from one of three reasons. Out of, next screen, a sense of duty or discipline where I have to do something, a sense of duty, I ought to do it, or a sense of delight, I want to do it. Now Paul, in this letter to Philemon, is overtly pushing the want to button, right? He's saying, oh, I want you to want to do the right thing here with Onesimus. But he is lightly hitting all the other buttons as well. In fact, when we read through the letter, do you notice there at the end, he's like, oh, by the way, fix a room up for me, because I'm going to come visit That is a subtle way to say, this is not the end of this story. This is not the end of our dealing about Onesimus. I'm hoping to come to town and check on this and see how it's gone. What I'm getting at here is that the have-to button, I mean the want-to button, is greatly satisfying. When people do what is proper in the Lord because they want to, that is satisfying. Super satisfying. Great joy. Super mega joy for the pastor when that happens. But we'll take the have-to button. (laughs) We would rather have the have-to button than radical disobedience. So let's be willing to push all of those buttons with each other. So here's the review of the application. We scattered them all throughout today. Number one, in Christ there's a way to live that is proper and a way to live that is not. And it is our job as brothers and sisters, especially as members of this local church, to help each other know and do what is proper. The key to that application is in Christ. In Christ, there's a way to live that's proper. In Christ, there's a way to live that's not proper. Lost people will live like lost people. But those who have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ must be different. My question for you today is, are you in Christ? Can I expect a different way of living from you? Because you've met Jesus and he's changed your life. You've seen God in his holiness and his righteousness. You've seen yourself in your sinfulness and the... the way that you deserve wrath and judgment for all of eternity because of your sin? Have you gotten to the point where you say, Jesus is my only hope? Jesus is the Son of God who died in my place that I could be forgiven and reconciled to God forever. Jesus died in my place and rose again, and I will depend completely on him for my salvation. Have you repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus Christ? That's what it looks like to be in Christ. And listen, if you haven't, Maybe today's the day. This kind of thing happens unexpectedly. Maybe today is the day you realize, oh, I am ruined before a holy God. I need someone to save me. Let me tell you, that someone is Jesus, only Jesus. 
Repent and believe today. Number two, there's a time for ordering and a time for appealing. We must, as brothers and sisters in Christ, submit ourselves to one another. So that when someone tries to help us do what is proper, no matter their approach, whether they are ordering or appealing, we pay attention. I want us to live as a fellowship where when another brother comes to you and says, I want to help you, no matter their tone, whether it's appealing or ordering, we listen to that brother. We listen to that brother because of mutual respect and love. We do a pretty good job of appealing to one another. We need a box for ordering one another and being ordered. And this is not just a matter of apostolic or pastoral authority. This is the kind of relationship and obligation we all have toward each other. We have an obligation to help each other walk like Jesus. And when we don't fulfill that obligation, the world can't tell who we are. The world will see no difference between us and them. We're called to be different. We're called to help each other be different. And we need to take that seriously. And let's be willing to play every card possible in the pursuit of that Christ-likeness amongst us. Let's push the have-to button. Let's push the want-to button. Let's push the ought-to button. Whatever button needs to be pushed to get people to do what is proper in the Lord, let's push it. But at this point, we only sing one song. Oh, please. We need a different tone every once in a while. Number four, a pastor's greatest joy is when his people want to do the right thing. Want to is the best case scenario. Some of you want to serve the Lord. Some of you want to follow the Lord and you're doing it. It's costing you. And I love that. We love that. We're encouraged by that. And the last application is that following Jesus won't be easy, but it will be worth it. You might get old. You might turn gray. Sure, surely, Oshel, the first, first day I saw her after my sabbatical, she, she said, Chris, I thought you were just getting old. Turns out you're tired. You look 10 years younger. <laughs> and I didn't know what to say. Like, thank, thank you? Was that what you say to that? But she was observing kind of that wear and tear. And it's worth it. It's worth it to serve Jesus. You might get old beyond your years. You might end up in jail. You might lose face. You might lose your life. It's not easy, but it's worth it. And I hope you'll follow Jesus, even when it's hard. Let's stand together and pray. God, you're good to us to give us your word, to instruct us and teach us like this. Help us to live together for you. As your people, give us love and respect for each other that will appeal and command and receive those kind of things to do what is proper in the Lord. We want to help each other live for you. Teach us more and more what that looks like. Teach us more and more how to receive that kind of help. But God, we, we recognize in this room there are people who don't know you. They're not in Christ. They're not part of the family. They're outside. They're dead, your word says. So we pray today that you make them alive by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, that they will repent of their sins and trust in Christ for salvation, and that they will be bold like these four young people we saw this morning, bold to stand up and say, Jesus has saved me. I belong to him, and I want to follow him. God, when we see that, We'll rejoice over it, and we'll help them. We'll help them follow Jesus for the rest of their days as they help us follow Jesus the rest of ours. 
God, have your way with our hearts. Use your word to change us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.